team at My Mortgage are all about making it easy to buy your first home. So we've put together some conversations where Claire and Greg talk about the process and share some of our top tips to help you on your journey. Kia ora team and welcome along to the My Mortgage podcast. It's Claire and Greg here. Hello. Hello. And we are keen to talk to you now about all of the bits and pieces you need to know once you've got a loan approval, basically. So we're going to talk through a few of our tips and tricks. We're going to talk about what a mortgage actually is over a property mm-hmm. and then through a couple of different types of properties, how to solve problems if something comes up and then how you pay your deposit on unconditional day. So to start off with, Greg, what is a mortgage? So there's a few kind of semantic things and word meanings here that are probably quite important. And people use them interchangeably, but they're a little bit different. So the mortgage is actually the legal kind of document that the bank has over your property or over what they hold as security. And this is where just right up front, having a really good solicitor, a lawyer, again, those words are sometimes interchangeable in our space, but a really good solicitor is going to be helpful here. They are the ones that do a lot of the legwork here and get the stuff sorted. So what happens is the day that you get to be buying your property, your solicitor work for the bank as well in this situation, and they will be putting a mortgage over that property that the bank can, they can basically sell that property if you don't pay your home loan. And so that's where the words are a little bit interchangeable because people use the word mortgage when they actually mean home loan. We uh, even do in our name. Yeah, we do. Uh, um, we should really be called my home loans. Yeah, so the home loan is the, actually the thing that you pay. A mortgage is what the bank holds over your property. A little bit of semantic stuff there. And the other part is around security. And that's like actually the thing that the bank holds that they can sell if you don't repay your home loan. So that's a property, essentially, the property. And we often talk about, is this property held as security? And a lot of people will say, particularly if they've had properties for a while, my property is freehold. And this is actually quite a good segue. We so, love some good semantics here yeah, when it comes yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, a good segue. So freehold is actually generally the title of a property. So it's freehold in that it doesn't have any legal charges over it. But lots of people will say when they've paid their mortgage off which is actually paying their home loan off, is that their property is freehold. We call that in our business unencumbered. That so is a big you're word. An unencumbered property if you don't have a home loan owing against that security. So, yeah, some really good, nice, big words here. Okay, I think the key thing there is a bank can actually still hold a mortgage over your property even if you don't have a home loan. Yeah. It's a little bit confusing, but essentially what that could mean in the like the worst case scenario is that if you owed the bank some money for another reason, they could arguably come and say, hey, we still hold a mortgage over your house and uh, we're going to sell that to repay it. Never heard of that happening, but they still actually legally have that mortgage there. Yeah. So one thing to do is when you pay off your home loan, if you no longer want the bank to have any security over that, you can actually get your property unencumbered. And so then the bank has no control over that, which is something to consider. But sometimes we actually do want to leave them in place because then we can borrow some more money with less paperwork. Yeah, which is great. So this is a good segue into title types. So lots of people ask questions around the different legal descriptions essentially for property. So I'm going to cover the most common ones that we see. So the first one is a freehold title. Essentially, there's no legal requirement for allowing businesses or anyone to come onto the property. There's no reasons for other people to have access, so neighbours or anything like that. We kind of call it a clean title, freehold clean title. Second one is what we call a cross-lease. These are really common in Hamilton and the Waikato where properties essentially 
generally two, but sometimes up to, I've seen one that was seven, which was a bit crazy. But essentially in these situations, there's generally two homes and then there's designated areas for each of those homeowners to use the land that is jointly owned. So they call it cross-lease because you're actually leasing land off each other jointly and severally. So essentially that's the cross-lease title. And then there's another title called a unit title, which is similar, but a little bit different in that those common areas are generally, there's generally more unit titles in one area. So generally four, six, sometimes eight. I have, again, seen up to 30, which is a bit crazy. Um, But they're generally units, so they call them a unit title. It's generally a smaller property. Some townhouses have this type of structure. And then in this situation, there's also common area, and that common area is usually maintained by a body corp organisation. So an example of this is a driveway. Often there'll be an access driveway right up to the back left unit and that will be maintained by a body corp. All of the owners of the properties in that unit title area will have use of that area but they won't own it in full. So that's the unit title. The last one is an apartment and this is essentially a high-rise version of a unit title. (laughs) So instead of it all being on one level, you go up. So same thing, common areas, external Cladding of the property gets maintained by the body corp, window washing, all of that kind of stuff does get maintained, lifts, stairs, all of those things. So very similar and you will generally pay body corp fees of X amount per year to have a property in that area. So those are, you can't avoid those, you have to if you buy the property and you'll be able to get details of the body corp minutes from a solicitor or whoever's selling the property two things there. So people get a little bit scared sometimes of cross leases, unit titles and apartments sometimes because they're not sure of how that's going to affect them in terms of owning a property. Often what you'll find is apartments are generally cheaper because of one, the body corporate fees. So there's fees associated with it. And so that's an extra cost. So you've got to take that into account. And then secondly, because you're not actually owning any, like the land itself. And so then you're really just owning the apartment. And then in terms of the cross lease, so I actually owned a cross lease property as our first home. And we probably went in a little bit blind, but we had absolutely no issues. And 99% of the time, you're not going to have any issues. You need to get your other owner's kind of permission to do major things. So there's a few more steps to go through, but as long as you've got a good relationship with that neighbor and I haven't had a problem and you can actually, it's not super expensive now to get a cross lease section actually split to become a freehold title. So that's something you could look at if you did go down that track. Let's talk a little bit about what might come up with some of these titles and also maybe we'll talk a little bit about some building issues as Mm. well that might come up because often people freak out when stuff like this happens and they're actually quite solvable with a good solicitor, a good builder and a really practical approach with the bank. So Mm. firstly, Greg, let's have a bit of a chat about what things might come up with titles. Yeah, so some of the things might be some unconsented work potentially. So hey, someone's built a carport or there was a carport and I've, and this is a situation I've had, someone's put walls on it and basically created it into a garage, but it's actually unconsented. And sometimes then we get an evaluation done or potentially when the solicitor's looking through the LIM report, they'll find this unconsented work and the banks will often have a few questions about it, but it's actually not that hard to sort out if we're able to put a good plan in place. Other things like the flats plan. So in the LIM report, there's a plan of what the house should look like. It's pretty high level. It's not super detailed, but occasionally there'll be, oh, actually this conservatory 
wasn't on the original flats plan. And often these flats plans were created in, you know, the 1960s and have just never been updated. But again, you can get those updated. We just need some time and a really good plan in place. Um, with the unconsented work, for example, we may have to go, okay, cool, how are we going to get it consented? What funds do we need available to be able to consent that? Potentially, you could negotiate with the person who is selling the house for them to get it consented before settlement and the bank might be able to condition for that. So there is ways around it. And again, really good relationship with a solicitor and a builder is going to go a long way to be able to um, solve some of those problems if they do come up. If you've got a less than 20% deposit, sometimes it's a little bit harder to work through. So just be aware of that. If you are looking to buy a house and there's some unconsented work and you've only got a 10% deposit or 15% deposit, uh, we just need to work through some things, but it might be a little bit more complex. Once you're over 20%, the banks are a little bit more flexible because obviously they're looking after their risk in that case. And I think another key thing that I've learned over my many years is to have a plan. So you got some unconsented work. I've had an example just yesterday of a beam that was moved in a dwelling. Mm. It's a major beam. Existing owners didn't think it needed to be consented, actually did have to be consented, and now they are undertaking to get that beam consented prior to settlement. So bank will normally be more than happy with that. If that change is going to be made prior to settlement, they'll be happy as long as that's paid for and done by the vendor. But there, that's a little uncommon. So often it'll be a split between the two of you. So let's say, for example, there's a cross-lease title. The flats plan, like Greg, wasn't updated. It's going to cost seven grand to do that. You might want to split the cost. You might want to reduce the price by a couple of thousand dollars to account for it. And there are just ways in which the vendor may be able to action something prior to settlement, but also ways in which we can prove to the bank that you've got the money to make those changes or improve that property to the standard that they need it to be. We are seeing a little bit more questions being asked. And another situation I had recently was a property being sold probably a little bit lower than maybe what it was worth. But that was just sort of part and parcel of the market and the timing, and it was a very genuine purchase. There was nothing wrong with the property. But sometimes in that situation, the bank will just ask a couple of extra questions. So, yeah, we're always here for advice because we have seen it all, and many solicitors, most solicitors, are really, really helpful in that respect as well. So taking a real practical approach and having a plan is sort of our advice there. This is where having different bank options is really helpful as well because just a month ago I had a client where a whole home had never got code of compliance and one bank was being quite difficult, wanted all sorts of things and all these different reports and another bank just said, hey, that's fine we can make it work. Here's the few things we need. We need evaluation. We need this. We need that. And we got it done much easier, but that was because we had those options. In that situation, actually, the council, and to be honest, I've never seen a council work so quickly, but they actually gave the property code of compliance as at when it was built, which was like 2008. So on the 2008 regulations, it got code of compliance. So go figure. There's always ways you can can get things done. Yes. Okay, so the last thing I want to cover today, Greg, is about paying deposits on unconditional. So here we're assuming that we've worked through this process, we've solved all our problems, we've got an unconditional loan offer from the bank, and we're ready to 
confirm this property and essentially go unconditional or confirm the agreement is unconditional. Mm. So what happens then? Yeah, so again, there's some semantics here that might be helpful to understand. We all talk about deposits and what we talk about there is like how much you have to put towards the property versus how much the bank is kind of bringing to the party in a home loan. But there's actually on the day that you say, yep, I'm unconditional, so you've met all your conditions in your sale and purchase agreement, there's a unconditional day deposit to pay there. Generally, that's 10%, but if you don't have 10%, available right now. So say you've got 5% in cash savings, you've got another 5% in KiwiSaver, and then maybe you're being gifted another 5%, let's say. You can, on the sale and purchase agreement, say, no, I don't want to pay 10%. I just want to pay my 5%. You can write that in there. So that's definitely an option. What actually happens on that day is generally you will pay that deposit, whatever you've put on your sale and purchase agreement, out of your savings or your KiwiSaver, and you can use KiwiSaver for that deposit, or maybe off gifting or a loan that you've got from family. You pay that generally to the real estate agent's trust account, and sometimes it might go to your solicitor, but generally to the real estate agent, to their trust account. It sits there for a little while. At that point, the real estate agent will probably take their commission from that, and then they will give the rest of that to your solicitor ready to sit there for the day of settlement. And then on that settlement day, and we've done another podcast about this in terms of that process between settlement, unconditional and settlement, but on settlement day, any more money that you're putting towards it. So maybe it's your KiwiSaver, maybe it's some gifting from family or whatever, that goes to your solicitor. The money from the bank, so the actual home loan will come to the solicitor and then they will get all of those funds and transfer it across to the vendor's solicitor ready for you to take keys of your property. Yeah, exciting. Makes it sound really simple, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) So thank you guys all for joining us today. So we are going to keep going and provide some more podcasts for you talking about the unconditional to settlement period of time. But thanks for joining us. Thank you, Greg, for all of your knowledge. And we will catch you next time, team. See ya. Wherever you're at, you can get in touch with our friendly, easygoing team and get some advice tailored just for you. At My Mortgage, we never say no, only here's the plan. And we're happy to take the time to take you through the process and make it easy. My Mortgage, making home loans more fun and less boring since 2012.